one of the amazing teachings of gratitude is that it does not depend, you're experiencing it does not depend on external circumstances. I used to think that I had to approve of the way things were set up. (laughs) If I was to feel thankful, that it was like counting the blessings. But what we experienced then in that uh, seeing was something deeper than that, wasn't it? It has something to do with belonging. It has something to do with the mystery that has called us into being that is still there at the heart of everything that we will never, ever be separated from. So in whatever the situation, when you're faced with a seemingly overwhelming task, when you're faced with wanting to, needing to repair something that's broken, gratitude can well up then too. That's that, the capacity for that is, is in us. It comes, it comes with life. <clears throat> Last month I was, had an amazing week uh, at uh, a dismantled nuclear bomb factory is outside Boulder, Colorado. It's called Rocky Flats. It's where the plutonium pits were made. And in every warhead in the U.S. arsenal, there's that plutonium pit or trigger that was made at Rocky Flats. There are 20,000 nuclear uh, bombs now. Many of them, uh, a large proportion, still targeted. At any rate, uh, we did this work with a a group of people of all ages who want to stop the Department of Energy, from turning this area, which is laced with plutonium, from 37 years of making the triggers with a very sloppy management by Rockwell International and illegal burnings and the whole smear. 
you know that uh, you developing nuclear weapons and nuclear power doesn't make you the neatest person in the world. And uh, and the um, what grew up was in the work was it's still staggering to me the sense of gratitude of the um, little band of couple dozen nuclear guardians. Huge job, because they want to stop the Department of Energy from turning it into a (coughs) recreational area where children will play. And that's planned, actually, for uh, all the weapon sites, Hanford, Savannah River, uh, when they're dismantled, because that will show the world that it's been an okay operation. And uh, at any rate, a huge job. And what came through that was almost intoxicating to me <laughs> was the sense of, oh, good, we, we have something really big to work on. Yeah. And there was a sense of uh, uh, summoning up of the blood and uh, a, an electricity in the air. I kind of felt, oh, my life has tremendous meaning. How good is I'm so glad I was born to be here, faced with this, with all my senses and my brain and my good friends, and that sense of uh, linking arms and being glad for each other. It just made your uh, heart sing. So things don't have to be just perfect for you to feel gratitude. And I felt that when I received this week a message from one of them, a young man named Seth, and he was writing to the others and he said, Dear friends, dear uh, brother, sister, guardians, I want you to, you know, he was announcing the next meeting and there's several strands of what they're doing. But he said then, in a postscript, he said, And in parting, let me say, Rest and be kind to yourselves. Uh, Feel within you uh, the great winds of time. Feel how you are deeply rooted you are in the earth. Feel the immensities of the seas that are within you and outside you. And he said, whether we go forth to perish or to flourish, we are inextricably intertwined in the living body of earth. That just blew me away. And it was saying, not, oh, woe is us, faced with this terrible, we're the worst people who ever lived this, we humans, and oh, this is so terrible. And instead, he turned, being able to see fully 
the danger and said, ah, this is our work. And we are part of this world and it's in us. Whether we perish or flourish, we go forth inextricably intertwined. So I think of that as we move into this next station of the spiral of the word of the reconnects, which is to uh, feeling grounded now, grounded and gladdened with our gratitude for the gift of life. We use our capacity. We use our attention. We use our breathing lungs and beating heart. We use the rhythm of life within us. We use all that we are to see what is happening to and in our world and to our brother-sister beings because our world cannot heal unless we see it. This world cannot repair itself and cannot self-heal if we pull down the shutters and close the curtains and say, I won't think about that. It's too depressing. But strengthened by the gratitude. We even feel gratitude that we're here now. Isn't that so? So, uh, with them, as with you, I, I, I shared the Shambhala warrior prophecy. And I'm going to share it now, and many of you have heard it from me because it's kind of my marching orders, and it comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, <clears throat> I heard it from, and I'm going to give you the version of this prophecy. It's a prophecy that is 12 centuries old, and it uh, originates in the Kala Chakra Tantra. And... <clears throat> When I, I'm um, very close to, and my life has been greatly shaped and influenced by being part of a Tibetan refugee community in northwest India. Uh, and I've been linked with it since the mid-1960s uh, when my family and I were there in India with the American Peace Corps. And I got to know them then. They had recently come out Uh, into exile uh, from Tibet, fleeing the Chinese occupation. Uh, But it wasn't for uh, uh, till over 15 years later when I was back on a visit in the early 80s that uh, I was visiting the community. They're partly lay people, about 300 lay people, 100 monks and lamas and Uh, So they were talking about this prophecy. They said, you know, it seems to be coming true in our time, in our generation, even though it's so very ancient. And I said, well, what's it about? And they said, it's about a very dark time, very great danger. Well, you see, I'm kind of apocalyptic by nature. (laughs) And I said, oh... (laughs) the cold war had begun in earnest by then uh, and uh, 
So uh, I um, heard three different versions of it, and um, and the one that uh, locked in, the one that um, I'm going to share with you, is from uh, my friend Dugu Chigyal Rinpoche. There comes a time when all life on earth... Oh, wait, just a minute. Uh, you will hear reference to uh, Shambhala warrior. And you will know, you will recognize that that is a metaphor for uh, the bodhisattva, the hero in the Buddhist tradition. The one with the boundless heart. The one, yeah, Okay. All right, so these are as close, these are very, pretty much his words. We are living in this time, in this time we are living. Great powers have arisen. Barbaric powers. And although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common. And among the things they have in common are weapons of unfathomable devastation and death and technologies that lay waste the world. And it is just at this moment when all life hangs by the frailest of threads, that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it's not a place. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. And actually you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him because they don't wear any uniforms, no insignia. They have no banners that they wave to identify whose side they're on. They have no barricades on which to climb to threaten the enemy or behind which they can rest and regroup. Always they have only the terrain of the barbaric powers to move across. Now is the time, Chugat Rinpoche said, when great courage is required of the Shambhala warriors, moral courage and physical courage, because they are going to go in to the centers of power, of the barbaric powers, to dismantle their weapons. They're going to go to dismantle weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go where the armaments are manufactured and deployed. They're going to go into the halls of power where the decisions are made. And then he said, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled. Why? because they are manomaya. That means mind-made. They are made by the human mind, so they can be unmade by the human mind. 
because the dangers that are facing us now (coughs) are not brought upon us by some satanic extraterrestrial force, you know, or some evil deity, or even some inexorable, inalterable, predestined fate. They arise from our choices. They arise from our relationships. They arise from our habits of mind and body and action. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. So he said, now is the time when the Shambhala warriors go into training. (laughs) You can imagine. How do they train? (laughs) (laughs) And he held up his hands the way the lamas in his community <clears throat> hold the ritual objects in the great lama dances of his people. <coughs> and he said, they train in the use of two weapons. That's actually the word he used, two weapons. And then I said, what are they? And he held up his hands. One is compassion and the other is insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. (laughs) And you need both, he said. One is not enough. You need the compassion because that provides the fuel, the motive force to get you out where you need to go to do what you need to do. And what it boils down to is this to not be afraid of the suffering of your world. And when you're not afraid of the suffering of the world, then nothing can stop you. You can go where you need to go to do what you need to do. He said, by itself, it gets very hot. It can burn you out. So you need the other weapon, the other tool. And with that insight, understanding, wisdom into the inter-existence of all things, the radical, inextricable, just as Seth said in his little email this week, inextricably intertwined of all things, uh, then you know that this is not a battle between the good guys and the bad guys. It's not about that. Because the line between good and evil goes through the landscape of every human heart. And when you have that tool, that insight, you know that we are so interwoven in the web of life that even the smallest act with clear intention has repercussions through that web that you can barely begin to see, let alone measure. (coughs) Makes all the difference. 
But he said, by itself, that's a little abstract, a little cool. So you need the heat of compassion. And as he said that, I was thinking, oh, that's what I've been seeing, the monks with their moving gesture, hand gestures, the mudras, as they chant often, you've seen them. They're likely as not dancing the interplay between compassion and insight. Well, that was it. That was the, that was the prophecy. I was so excited. I went racing down to the edge of the community where my family happened to be visiting at that time, too. And it was the end of the afternoon, and I burst in, and I said, Oh, you will never... (laughs) You can't guess what I just heard from Juja Rinpoche. And I proceeded to tell my family the uh, prophecy. And my son Jack, Jack was with us. (laughs) And he listened, and he said... Well, didn't he tell you how it's going to turn out? (laughs) That is so good that you laugh. And I did too. And I said, oh, if he had tried to tell me how it's going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed anything. So don't you believe people who tell you how it's going to turn out. It's the fact that we don't know that is... uh, our awakening in this time. We can't wake up with if we have it handed to us. No, it's, it's too, too late. It's over. Don't bother. Or it's a sure thing. No. No, it's that not knowing that calls us to be and understand what we need to be and understand at this time. So I tell that now because as we address our pain for the world, as we address the woundedness we see around us, as we address the dishonored ocean, as the poet Denise Levertov talks about it, and a boy is it dishonored now. As we look at the clear cuts, as we look at the homeless in the streets, as we hear of the fantastic hungers in the Horn of Africa as we look at the hungers and statistics in our own country, as we look at the layer of smog over our cities, as we hear about the spasms of extinction of species, as we look at more and more foreclosures of homes and people falling through the safety net in a greed-devoured society. as we watch a climate system going, spiraling out of ever more fearsome oscillations of heat and flood. As we allow ourselves to remember every minute of every day of these days, the war-making, the trillions that we're spending, destroying the lands and the people in Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan with our drones. 
Oh, it's enough to break your heart. And your heart is breaking. But then the heart that breaks open can hold the whole universe. It's beautiful. We discover the mystery (coughs) and the wonder of our being able to suffer with our world. With our friends who are sick, with our friends who are jobless, with our own fears, experiences of failure and fear. Oh, this is a dark time. And this is the time you have, in a way, perhaps you even chose. Perhaps we asked for it. But would you want this to happen to earth and you not be on hand? Would you? My grandfather did that once in a while. He'd yell. <laughs> he I was a pre- he was a preacher, and he would thump on the, on the pulpit. But the thing is, he thumped in order to when he raised his voice. It was not to tell people they were bad, but to tell people how much God loved them. God loved you so much. <laughs> I certainly hope some of you are going to raise your voice. There's quite a bit to raise our voice about. So, um, my sweet sister here and I, we were getting pretty hot under the collar about some of the devastation happening. And we couldn't think of anything worse than what was happening in Canada in the tar sands. So something possessed us to just decide to go up there and see it with our own eyes. We set up some gigs. We took the money from our gig. We hired a plane. I kid you not. A little three-seater plane. Yes, we did. (laughs) Joanna was in the front (laughs) with the pilot. A four seat, five. There are five of us, yeah. And the stink. And I was a little seasick. Yeah. Air sick. I didn't throw up, but that was the other great preoccupation on my mind. <laughs> How horrible this was and whether I could keep my breakfast down. Anyway, take it from there. Tell us what it what it Yeah. Um <clears throat> Well, you know, Joanna had come up to me when we were working up at Holy Names um, University a few year, a couple of years ago and said, I want to go to the tar sands. And I knew immediately what that was because I'm from Alberta. And um, I know there's, there's a couple Canadians here today, so you know what that's about. And how many of you have heard of the tar sands? Oh, wow, that's really good. So good. Um, it's really Canada's 
dirty secret, you know. And I, being Canadian, we're very proud of, there's a kind of Canadian pride around the way that we've managed the natural world. And big, extensive park lands. And um, so this really doesn't fit in with the kind of Canadian um, persona. This idea that one of the, probably the, maybe the worst environmental disaster on the planet is happening in the northlands of Alberta and now moving um, east, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. And essentially what's happening is they're um, pulling the, the, you know, trying to get the last bits of oil from the earth. And there's, it's not like there's oil that's being drilled for there. They have to actually use massive amounts of chemicals and remove the entire. Um, ancient, um, pristine forests, hundreds and hundreds of acres of it, completely demolished and removed uh, from the surface of the land so they can go under. And through chemicals, um, they leach out what's this kind of tarry substance and then process it into something that gets shipped to the United States and turned into oil. And um, it costs an enormous amount of um, water, and oil to get the tar out of the ground. And there's all kinds of things happening because of it. I mean, just the land alone has been... When Joanna and I went up in that plane, you know, I had some ideas. I'd seen some pictures in National Geographic. I mean, we both had. But we flew for an hour in one direction and did not come to the end of it. And it is simply... You look down and all you see is pools of toxic waste, they call tailing ponds. And it's right adjacent to the great Athabasca River. So the river is being um, just completely destroyed. And, and there's all these, be- these communities, native uh, communities, who live downstream. And they're, of course, getting the, they're suffering in, hugely from the repercussions. And there's a lot of just denial about it. And... Um, in Canada and in Alberta and around the world. So to go with Joanna, I mean, when she asked me, I thought there's no person I'd rather go with to do something like that. And um, it was absolutely profound and distressing to see. And so I've created a song about it and really sing it everywhere I go because it seems like such an important thing to be talking about. One other thing, a couple other things, when Joanna, you were mentioning how... um, they're building playgrounds on um, those toxic sites. One thing that just amazed us, I mean, we were kind of in a state of complete distress and hysterical laughter the whole time because it was so absurd. It was like we were in a bardo of the absurd. In Fort McMurray, it's actually known as Fort McMoney because lots of money's being made off of this, the whole Canadian economy and lots of workers um, um, so they have these big billboards up that the corporations, Suncor and all these other corporations from the States and Europe are put up that say things like, um, Suncor, leaving the land better than we found it. And they, they have this idea that they tell us, they're going, they say they're going to plant trees and rebuild, you know, and you're just looking at it going, you've, what kind of parallel universe are we in? You remember those billboards? And I do. S- I remember uh, uh, the next we drove along, they have these huge lakes that, that are f- with the effluent. Once they've pumped down these uh, uh, lethal chemicals, then they're put into 
uh, these lakes. They don't know where to put them. And sometimes they don't, they're just earthen dams. And uh, this is on a fly route of ducks and geese and migratory birds. And if they just uh, touch down, they can't get up again. They're, they're so they've tried all kinds of things. So no problem, no problem. We're just, we're just, and they have, and some of them they have cannons that they find boom, as that's to scare away the uh, migratory birds. But um, they don't. And, um, you know, it was also the, the complexity of it was very obvious to us because we did events in Edmonton and up in uh, Calgary, and um, <coughs> we met people who worked on those, in those places. There's a lot of jobs to be had. We met men who, um, I remember we were giving an event, and he put up his hand and sort of telling his story of what it was like to work there. And, in the, and a lot of the workers are um, heavily drugged. It's a big problem with crack because the working there, as you can imagine, it's a hell zone to just that you go in for days at a time. So, and so the whole social structure, it's not just like environmentalism versus this pristine, beautiful economy. It's actually the whole social infrastructure of the area has been destroyed. Um, there's, way, uh, there's no housing. The, the people who have lived there forever can no longer afford to live there because prices go up um, massively. And, and then there's these young men who have way too much money on their hands and no culture, nothing to do. And so prostitution and drug, the whole drug thing and crime is just through the roof. So it's all a whole complex, a complex of things. And it's the whole idea of interdependence is so clear when we saw that. And the last thing I'll say before I'll just before I'll sing is that I remember we, we, of course, we had to have a car. And we were driving around the town. And I remember I went to fill it up with gas, Joanna. And I remember going to that gas pump after we'd done that flyover and feeling the insides of what it, what it meant to be driving that car and putting that oil. It was so clear to me. The, the most, just, it was the most poignant moment of my life in terms of getting what the cause and effect of what we're doing and how we're all part of it, you know, and that the solution has to come through all of us. So... The area is so big it can be seen from outer space. And most of the uh, tar sands, this muck that's brought down, is to the U.S. For the U.S. So breathe with this. Breathe it through your heart. Breathe it through.
Thank you very much, and thank each other. And and I would like to um, call your attention to something. (coughs) I feel strongly about it, so I'm going to stand up. I want you to please observe, notice how in the the concerns that you have just shared in these exchanges, how far they extend beyond the personal ego. How what you have been experiencing and expressing, how far it goes beyond your individual needs and wants. Just notice that, because it says something very important about what you are and who you are. It shows that you are capable of suffering with your world. And of course, to suffer with is the literal meaning of compassion. You are a compassionate being. This is very important to notice in modern-day American culture, which still tends to reduce people's distress over social and ecological conditions to a kind of personal pathology. Again and again and again, it is interpreted as, in terms of your biography or some little hypersensitivity, or you were toilet trained too early, or you were, it's that time of the month, or what have you. So it's really important. James Hillman saw that in in their book, 100 Years of Psychotherapy and the World's Getting Worse and Worse. Now, I, I, I owe a personal great debt to psychotherapy, but th- th- this, <laughs> this is really important not to fall for in our culture because that is the way people get silenced. Yeah. So you are, uh, it takes courage to suffer with our world. It takes courage not to be afraid of the suffering of the world. You're evincing a strength. You are actually, that's the definition, is it not, of the bodhisattva, the one of the boundless heart. Hi, bodhisattvas. (laughs) So I would like to close this morning uh, with a poem. And then we'll have some announcements from Sean before we go to lunch. Uh, This is a poem that has meant a great deal to me that uh, honors the great pain that we're in and the darkness that we're in and also uh, how it can transform us into take us in to our true nature and our identity as a life on earth. 
So it's the sonnet to Orpheus from Rilke. It's the last one. Quiet friend who has come so far. Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. And as you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell and as you ring what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What's it like this intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses. The meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. And to the rushing water speak, I am. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world ceases to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow, and to the rushing water speak, I. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.